I have to kick off this episode by sharing that people are freaking out about the book we're discussing today in so many ways. As I've posted the title and cover on Instagram periodically over the last few weeks, I've received messages that say things like, this book was totally my jam, or this book messed me up so hard, or I don't know how I forgot about this book until just now. The book is Caroline B. Cooney's 1990 YA thriller, The Face on the Milk Carton. In its first chapter, main character Janie sees a photo of a girl that she recognizes as herself on the milk carton she's drinking from at lunch in her high school cafeteria. This discovery launches her into a full book's worth of investigation and emotional turmoil as she contends with the fact that her seemingly perfect parents may have kidnapped her from a shopping center in New Jersey years earlier. Over the course of Janie's journey, she learns of her parents' other daughter, Hannah, who ultimately we find out is the real kidnapper, weighs the possibility of getting in touch with her biological family by calling the phone number printed on the side of the milk carton, accidentally sends a letter to said biological family, and ponders a relationship, sexual and otherwise, with charming boy next door, Reeve. I loved the face on the milk carton as a kid. I loved it again as an adult, and I can't wait to share this conversation with you. Today's guest is Molly Turbeville, better known to you bookstagrammers as Molly Reads. She's a freelance book editor and book blogger who lives in Raleigh, North Carolina with her husband, two cats, and lazy hound dog. She loves the online book community and is always chasing her next favorite book. Check out Molly's blog and learn more about her editing services at mollyreads.com and, of course, follow her on Instagram at mollyreads. She also co-hosts a book podcast called No Thanks We're Booked. Great show name, right? Find it on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher or check out the show notes for this episode at www.ssrpodcast.com slash listen slash episode 38 for a link that will take you right there. While we're talking about ssrpodcast.com, don't forget that it's there. Every week, I share lots of cool info and resources in those show notes. Also on the SSR site is a support link that will bring you to our Patreon landing page, where you can show a little extra love for the pod by coming on as a sponsor. Pledge as little as a dollar per month to help keep this independent operation going strong. For $5, $10, or $20 a month, you'll get lots of awesome perks, including newsletters, merch, bonus episodes, book club chats, and more. Thanks so much to all of the Patreon subscribers who are already on board. If you love today's episode and are a fan of the gram, it would be super cool of you to take a screenshot of whatever app you're using to listen and share it to your story. Don't forget to tag us at SSRPod. We're also on Twitter at SSRPod, and you can find us on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast. When you share good vibes about the podcast on social media, it really does go a long way. So thank you in advance. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to The SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old-school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Molly. Welcome to SSR. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. It's great to meet you in real life. And we're recording, well, real life being Skype, but it's more (laughs) real life than Instagram where we've been in touch before. 
Yeah. I know. It's so fun. And we're recording on a Friday, so this feels kind of like a fun treat to end the week for me. And we're both, we both work from home and work for ourselves. And so Fridays are like extra. I just feel like Fridays are extra special when you like freelance, you know? I agree because you know that you're actually going to have some human contact consistently at the end of the day. Before we started recording, Molly told me she was actually going out in the world today. And I was like, I'm wearing lipstick today. It's a big deal. Good for you, girl. Get out there. Before you do go out, though, we are talking about the face on the milk carton, which I am thrilled to have had the chance to reread. Did you love it? I loved it. I loved it, too. Within three pages, I was writing inside my book. Like, I freaking love this book for no reason. When I was reading and I could see your Instagram stories about how much you were loving it, I wasn't sure. I was like, should I tell her I'm loving it or should I just keep it, keep her in suspense for when we talk? But I did. I loved it. I'm so glad. So had you read it before? Like, what was your history with this book or lack thereof? Okay, so I think I might have told you this, but when uh, when you gave me the options, there were a few that I really, really loved. And there was one that was like the sentimental option for me, which is Perks of Being a Wallflower. That book is like one of the main reasons I fell in love with reading. And then there was, I think, The Giver, which is like the literary pick. It would have been really good. I mean, there's so much you could talk about there. Yeah. But then I saw the face on the milk carton and I was like, I'm just so darn curious about this one. Like, I just had no idea how I would feel about it as an adult. Yeah. So I did not grow up the biggest reader. Like, there are a lot of books that I missed from my childhood, but this was one of them that I remember. And I remember the show, too. Did you see the show? I didn't see the show, but just before I jumped on this recording with you, I did like a quick YouTube search because I had yeah. had read in my research that there was this made-for-TV movie about it. Yeah. And yeah. listeners, you can watch it in 10-minute chunks on YouTube. Yeah. I totally looked it up earlier. And I may just watch the whole thing. And fun fact, the actor who plays Janie, the main character's dad, is actually Ed Herman of Gilmore Girls fame. Oh my gosh, I forgot about that. Yeah, R.I.P. Edward Herman. Oh, I love that. And he's yeah. so young. Um, and again, I only watched like the first five minutes. But yeah, it's yeah. all up there on YouTube. And all of it's like early 90s glory. Early 90s glory. Yeah. Yeah. I have my fingers crossed for a snow day one of these days because I think it would be perfect to yes. curl up and just like watch that movie. Um Yeah, so the book came out in 1990. I would imagine that the movie came out shortly after because it does not seem like the movie, based on what I saw on YouTube, could have been produced much later than, like, 1995. Uh, So the book is exactly as old as I am, fun fact. Um, I was also born in 1990. Love it. I think this might have been one of those books that I was probably, like, younger than I should have been when I read it. I want to say maybe, like, late middle school, mid-middle school. Same here. Yeah. It was probably one of the first books that I ever read where sex was so... Yes. Oh my gosh, we have to talk about that. Yeah, Yeah. we'll get into that for sure. But I think I also reread it a few years ago. Most of the listeners know that I worked in book publishing for a few years out of college. And I think at some point while I was working there, this book had an anniversary and there was also another book published. I have to look back and find out what it was called, but I believe there was like an epilogue book published in the last five years or so. And I realized how much I loved the series at that point and I wanted to go back and read the first one so that I could then read for the first time this new book. So I think I read The Face on the Milk Carton again, maybe in like 2014, 2015. And then again, I, I read it recently, obviously for this, but I loved it every time. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so it's fun because it is dated. Like there's so many parts 
in this book where I'm just like, oh my gosh, this is so old, but it's so fun. I really like it. And the pacing was good. I mean, it's not, it's not like a classic to me in the sense that I didn't think the writing was like out of this world, amazing or anything. Although I did think it was strong for what it was, but it, it wasn't like walk to moons kind of middle school classic, but it was so good. Like I, I, I just thought the pacing was so good. Yeah. It's largely dialogue and action. There's not a lot of description. Yeah. Like walk to moons is a great example of a book that's just so beautifully written. And this right. is not that, but as a story and as a plot, I think it's really well done and it's yeah. perfect for, I think the target audience and that it like gives you yes. the right amount of action, the right amount of suspense. And I, as an adult kind of figured out the mystery pretty quickly but I don't think I did as a kid yeah. like I think I definitely had that like oh my gosh moment the first time I read yeah. it of like oh the, yeah yeah it, it was perfect in that way I feel like it was a perfect reread for me because it had been so long that I didn't really remember how it was gonna end up so reading it was kind of new in that way it was funny thinking about how I read this as a kid because I think I was so wrapped up in like the relational side of the story and her her relationship with Reeve and like, oh, she has this boyfriend and this is her friend. And then reading it as an adult, I was like, oh my gosh, she's going through something really hard. Like there's so much trauma here. And she's like dealing with really big questions of good versus evil. And, and you know, like I'm weighing all of that as an adult. So it was funny because I was thinking middle school Molly was probably just focused on her boyfriend. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely these two sort of parallel plots going on. One is the love story and kind of her drama at school, which is very reminiscent of so many other books that we read on SSR and that so many of us read when we were growing up. And then there's this kind of like very unusual situation that she's dealing with where she thinks casually that she may have been kidnapped when she was three years old. Um, No big deal. Right. No big deal. As one does. (laughs) We've all had that moment. Do you read a lot of books in this genre now as an adult? Like, are you now a mystery thriller kind of reader? Because I'm Uh, not. And so I read this book right after I read, I know what you did last summer, which um, listeners, you'll have heard that episode a few weeks ago by the time this this episode drops. So having not read a thriller or a mystery in a yeah. long time, I now read these two back to back and it was kind of fun. That is fun. Yeah, I did not read a lot of thrillers growing up like this. And I still, to this day, like I, I rarely read thrillers and I definitely haven't had the experience of reading a lot of like middle grade YA thrillers. So it was fun. It was fun. So what were your first impressions in that? that we get yeah. a lot in that first chapter, both of Janie's family life and of her yeah. life at school. What what were your feelings? Like, I felt so nostalgic about so many yeah. of the aspects of her, like sitting in the kitchen with her mom and then the whole right. concept of like who sits at your lunch table, stuff like that g- right. gave me such nostalgic vibes right away. How did you feel about those early yeah. pages? Definitely got the nostalgia vibes in the cafeteria. And I was thinking too, like if... There's some readers now who would not even know what the whole milk carton thing is like. Yeah. So that that's one thing that definitely took me back. Um, actually, my first thought when I was in probably the first chapter was that Janie reads kind of young on the page. Like I was kind of surprised to learn that she was 15. But then as the story develops, I think... I start to realize like she is 15 and I think it's just the fact that it was written in the early nineties, um, that I felt that way. So first thoughts were feels kind of young. And then other than that, yeah, I was just really blown away by the way, the way that she talked about trauma and just how everything was unraveling in Janie's head. And she was really losing it. And I didn't remember that when I first read it. 
I think part of that is because this love story is unraveling and I had the same experience where reading it now as an adult, I was struck by how complicated her feelings about all of this were. I mean, really the full second half of the book is her waffling back and forth between wanting so badly to believe that her parents are good people who would never hurt anyone or do anything wrong. And also this like gut feeling that she may have actually been kidnapped and to be honest, I sort of was like a little sick of it at a certain point just because she goes back and forth so many times and it has that like almost soap opera tone of like Mm -hmm. melodrama and these long passages of guilt and it's so emotional. Oh my gosh, the guilt. The guilt was unreal. And I I think that was another thing I picked up on as an adult that I would have never picked up on as a kid was just thinking about the parents' role in all of this because obviously I don't want to give I don't want to give any spoilers away, but... No, we'll do spoilers. Um, oh, we will? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, this is um, not a spoiler-free podcast. I love it. Okay, yeah. good. It's okay. So I just felt like the parents were manipulative, like emotionally manipulative, and kind of keeping her in this place of feeling guilty, even if they didn't really know how much she knew, and in the end didn't even know the full truth. I felt like they were putting her up on this pedestal that was supposed to be Hannah, I found myself, even though I I loved her relationship with her parents, I thought it was, there were sweet moments in that. And I totally, um, in the end, like I was thankful that the mom made that decision to call her biological mom. But I just felt like something doesn't add up here. When I was reading it and I was like, did they really kidnap her? I don't know. Like something is, they're being so, um, I don't know what the word is. I felt like they were like very overprotective. They had good reason to be, but they were putting so much guilt and responsibility on her that it made me kind of annoyed with them. Yeah, I think that some aspects of that relationship that you were just describing, also it speaks to the sense that maybe Janie's a little bit immature. Like that's how I felt too. She's so protected. They're really trying to keep her in this box, as you mentioned. Um, She doesn't really have any freedom. I get the sense that she's a little spoiled. There's a mention of the fact that she has the biggest bedroom in the house. And there's a lot of description about like how beautiful the bedroom is. It doesn't seem like they have any financial concerns. Like she has whatever she wants. And so I think all of that may have played into the fact that she reads a little bit young just because she's so pampered by her parents parents and right off the bat you get this feeling that her parents are like untouchable like her mom volunteers for everything and her dad coaches a middle school soccer team even though he doesn't have any kids on the team so right off the bat you have this sense that like they're almost too perfect and it you do have this sinking feeling that like maybe there's a reason that that they're hiding something or or, like smothering her and I feel like she gets when she learns this truth about herself and she's not quite believing it yet I feel like she it kind of sinks in and she gets really self-conscious almost about their smothering or or I don't know I just feel like it becomes this burden to her that she has to be perfect or she has to tell her mom where she's going every five seconds because she can't let her mom worry because her mom loves her and she can't destroy Like there can't be any cracks in this relationship or, you know, they could go to jail. I feel like that really weighs on her. And you see that reading it as an adult for sure. Do you think part of it is the fact that she's an only child too, or at least in the current imagining of her family, we find out later on, obviously that her parents actually had another daughter who they believe is Janie's mother. Um, I growing up was an only child in one of my households. I have 
I have sisters who were at my dad's house, but in my mom's house, I was an only child. And I always felt very much like my mom needs to know where I am. And it is, it's a lot of love, but you also feel like you just don't want to mess up. Right. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense because I wouldn't know what it's like to be an only child, but I would imagine that's kind of how it would feel. Yeah. Yeah. You want to be perfect. We also get some interesting foreshadowing in those first few pages. There's this whole thing with Janie and her name where she thinks her name, Jane Johnson. I love it. I love it too. Jane Johnson. That was like my favorite. Just the, the, I love the idea of her identity crisis coming down to like literally her name (laughs) and how that plays out. Yeah, Yeah. She adds like a Y to her name and then she adds two two Y's to her name and then she like changes her last name. She adds like a T and an E. So she becomes Jane Johnstone. Like she really thinks Jane Johnson is so boring, which objectively it kind of is. And we do find out later on that like there's a reason that her name is so anonymous sounding. And I think in those first few pages, she mentions like my name could easily be forgotten. And you're like, hmm. It, it will be. That was sort of the purpose yeah, of it. Yeah, I loved that. There's also a mention of the fact that, like, I think one of her friends invited her to do something or is teasing her about going on a date, and her best friend, Sarah Charlotte, which cracks me up as oh a name. Oh, my gosh. Sarah um, Charlotte. Sarah Charlotte. What a character. Yeah, Sarah Charlotte's like, your mom doesn't even let you go to the mall alone, and isn't it <laughs> hilarious that all of this drama started yeah. 12 years ago in a mall? Yeah, I know. I love it. I love it. So the setup here for listeners who haven't revisited this in a long time um, is that Janie Johnson is a 15-year-old high schooler and she's lactose intolerant, but she decides one day at school at lunch that she's going to like forget her allergy because she's having a peanut butter sandwich, which is something we can all relate to. Like you got to have some milk with peanut butter. And so she asks to to have a sip of her friend Sarah Charlotte's milk. And as Molly was mentioning, while we don't really see this much anymore in 2019, in the 90s, like back in our day, um, you would get these like cardboard milk cartons at school. I remember they were so hard to open. Like you would have to. Oh my gosh, the worst. The worst. It took me till I was like in third or fourth grade to be able to do it alone. And I guess at that time, I don't remember this, but I guess at that time they were printing pictures of missing children on milk cartons. Janie sees a photo, recognizes herself in that photo and begins on this like 180 page long identity crisis trying to figure out whether her seemingly perfect parents could possibly have kidnapped her from this shopping center in New Jersey um, or if there's just been like some horrible mix up that's brought her picture to be on this milk carton and she just starts to pick up on clues like she notices that there are no photos of her in the house from when she's younger than five years old she realizes that her mom gets really shifty anytime she tries to ask about things like a birth certificate which you need Mm -hmm. when you're in high school to get a driver's license she realizes that she has this like crazy bright red hair nobody in her family has it so she's starting to pick up on all these clues early on um, but she's just not quite sure how much of it she wants to share because she doesn't want her parents to be upset understandably or how much she even wants to believe it. I mean, you can kind of see her fighting it. Like she wants to know that information on like a subconscious level, but in many ways she fights it. Uh, Did you read the letter in the beginning to the reader by the author on like why she decided to write this book? I didn't. I thought it was really interesting. If I can remember correctly, I think she was in an airport and she saw a missing child poster and it and she saw that it was like several years, like I think 15 years ago. And she said she got on the plane and she started crying, thinking about like just how sad for this family that that you would still hold out hope for one thing, but also like no one's going to recognize this this child now if she is still out there, if she was kidnapped. 
But then she kind of has this thought that I guess one person might recognize that picture and that one person would be the girl. And wouldn't that be an interesting thriller idea? And so she kind of ran with it from there. I love finding out how people decided to write books, especially when it's like in an airport or something. Yeah, this is such so a great fun. premise. I'm mad at myself for, for skipping oh, it's over in that there. You got to read it. Yeah. I'll have to go back. But it's true. Like, I guess you would be the one to notice. And it's funny because when I posted on Instagram that we were going to be reading this book and recording an episode about it for the podcast, I had like four or five people immediately respond back to me and be like, this book screwed me up so much when I was little. It strikes a nerve. Because you're like, is my life what I think it is? Is there any possibility that my parents aren't who they Mm -hmm. say they are? It's scary. You really are dealing with this idea of what is evil really early on because even if they did kidnap her, she wants to believe that they're good people and that they're that they love her and she knows that she would still love them. So there's this like kind of wrestling with what's right. And she has a lot of guilt about leaving her family and not just kind of willingly going with this woman who I guess like promised her ice cream or she meets her when she gets ice cream. It was really interesting to me that she felt so guilty knowing that she was three, right? She was three, I think. She was was three when she was kidnapped, supposedly, yeah. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that she like put so much guilt on herself because in my mind, I'm like, you're three, of course you're going to go with someone and, and just kind of pretend and, you know, things can happen when you're that little where you just forget things. I mean, it's clearly a traumatic event, you know? Yeah. Um, but I kept thinking about, and I want to know what you think about this because there were so many moments where she was just kind of on autopilot, sort of like spacing out for long periods of time. And I don't know a lot about, so I don't know, you might not want to put this in the podcast, but I, I was wondering about, um, derealization and like certain, uh, mental illnesses or just like I don't know, something in in that traumatic part of her life where it's causing her to space out. It's causing her to go into this state that is very similar in what I know of derealization. And I just feel like that was really interesting to have written it that way in the 90s mm-hmm. because I feel like we don't know that much about mental illness today even, I feel like. So... Yeah, I wanted to know what you thought of that. Yeah, and I think it's worth talking about and fine to put on the podcast because it's an interesting aspect of the book, and I certainly don't claim to be an expert on any of this, but I have absolutely heard from people in my life who have been through traumatic situations, especially when they were young, that they've blocked out either all or a majority of that experience. So I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that she just blocked it out or remembered the happier parts of that experience, which as you mentioned, like we're led to believe that she was out at the shopping center with her biological family and some young woman offered her ice cream or they were sitting next to each other at an ice cream shop and Janie was kind of like lured away by this woman. So yeah, I think it's absolutely a possibility that she kind of has blocked it out Mm -hmm. and it's almost like it was buried so deep within her subconscious that it needed some sort of a real catalyst in order to bring it back to the top of her mind and in her case it was the milk carton and like actually seeing her face as it looked 12 years prior and then she has these little triggers where she remembers she had a dog named honey or she remembers just random details yeah, I, I thought she did a really good job of writing those repressed memories and how they come back. And and just the way she describes her, like, color wheel brain, I think she said. 
yeah, I just really liked the whole unraveling of Janie. I felt like that was the edge that this book needed that I didn't catch when I was a kid. <laughs> Well, because she really seemed to have it all together early on in the book. Like, I didn't really get that strong of a sense of her personality. Like, I feel like you could project a lot of your own experience onto her. But from what we could tell in those first few chapters before things really start to fall apart, like, she seems to get good grades. She has good friends. She obviously has this very loving, sort of conventional nuclear family at home. So it's interesting to watch somebody like that really spiral it's kind of like cracking that perfect yeah veneer a I little love bit. stories like that when characters just kind of crack a little bit <laughs> and you kind of see that in her mom too because her mom yeah. is like even more of a perfectionist mm-hmm. and every time Janie asks a question that sort of like threatens her mom's sense of the family as it exists she asks her where her birth right. certificate is which you know, kind of hilarious that they'd never thought that this would come up later on, but I know. her mom, like, freaks out, and they get into this little fight about, like, you can't boss me around. I'm your mother. Like, I'll get you your birth certificate when I feel like it. And her mom really just does not like to be challenged, again, because I think she's managed to create this, like, perfect little family that she doesn't want to see taken away from her. And one thing I also wanted to talk about briefly with the mom, because it really jumped out at me, and I wonder if it did for you. Her mom has a lot of, like, food and weight issues, Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Which I thought was interesting because it didn't come back in the end and connect to anything. Like Uh if it had circled back and it turned out that like maybe people in the Johnson family tended to be heavy and Janie always was naturally thin or something. Like I I felt like it didn't serve a purpose. Right. Yeah. So that was kind of weird and it was annoying to me because every time Janie's mother was involved, I felt like there was some right. comment about like, oh, you're so weight obsessed. Or at one point, Janie even says something to the effect to her mom, like, oh, I'm like the thinnest person here next to you, which is mm-hmm. so strange. And mm-hmm. now in 2019, I think when we're so much more aware of the importance of body positivity and that right. dialogue is so much more open, it was just weird to me that that was such a theme for no real yeah. purpose. I wonder if it was is really just to deepen her character of just trying to control things and yeah, that self-control piece and like limiting herself. I don't know. And I, I really picked up on it when the husband would make comments about it. Yeah. That struck a nerve with me. I was like, oh yeah, this would not be in a book today no. if it was published. At least not with the intention of showing like, oh, what a good guy this is. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if that was in the story just because in the 90s, that's what wives talked about. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you could definitely be right, but that just really bothered me because I was waiting for it to somehow circle back to be important. that's true. But it just seemed, yeah, maybe it was just part of building her character. And as sensitive as her mom was to questions about the birth certificate and the photos and things like that, I was sort of surprised by how unruffled she was when Janie finds this box in the attic. So listeners, after Janie's mom tells her that she would have to go to the bank to get a copy of her birth certificate, Janie decides to take it upon herself. Um, She like looks in the desk to see if she can find the key to the vault at the bank and when she can't find it there she decides to go to the attic which is a place she's usually not allowed to go to and she finds this trunk that's full of school papers and like old clothes and at the bottom she actually finds the dress that she is wearing in the photo that she saw on the milk carton so she obviously like immediately makes the connection thinking that there's something there's a connection 
connection yeah. between what's in the trunk and the milk carton photo. And the name on all of the school papers is Hannah Javinson. And at some point, she just sort of like asks her parents outright, like, what is this box that I found? And I thought that her parents would be way more freaked out, especially because her mom Mm -hmm. was so sensitive about the birth certificate question. And her parents were just like, okay, I guess, I guess we have to tell you about it. Like, it was almost like they had just been waiting for it to come up. Right. But they they probably were from her for so long. So it was interesting that they're like so ready to talk about it. Yeah, I wonder if they just kind of always knew this day would come and and just dreaded it and had like sort of a a game plan for if if it did come up, you know. I was thinking when I was reading that, because I I kind of forgot the main plot when I was reading this. So I was reading it thinking, did they kidnap her? What's going on? I kind of even forgot about Hannah thinking like, oh, they had a daughter and she died. That's that was my first thought was like she died and then they like replaced their daughter with Janie. But when I was, yeah, when I was reading it, I was thinking they have a plan in place here and they're lying to her again. Like that was my first thought because they kept looking at each other. I think the description was like, they would look at each other and one of them like nodded or something. And it's like, it's time. And it probably felt like a, a relief in a lot of ways to finally tell her. But yeah, after that point is when the mom becomes really needy mm-hmm. and is is just kind of like, I feel like extra protective and extra like controlling about wanting to know where Janie is going after school, almost as if they didn't think Janie really bought it. And that's kind of why I thought they were lying. They did not seem to think that she was okay with that information. And she wasn't, clearly. Um, But she does a really good job of hiding those feelings, I feel like. In the morning, I think she goes down for breakfast and she's like, I'm fine, I'm good. And the dad's like, do you want to eat with us? I, I don't remember exactly how it played out, but they were just, I feel like, desperate for things to go back to the way that it was. And that was surprising to me. Like, obviously things cannot go back to the way they were, you know? I think Janie kind of wanted them to. There's a part of her that's relieved. Like, the story that her parents told her is that they had this daughter named Hannah who they raised until I think she was like 16 or 17. She'd always been a bit of a rebel. She ends up running off with a cult, um, the Hare Krishnas. And years after that, she comes back to their house with this little girl who they can only assume is her biological daughter. Um, And they end up keeping this child who we find out is Janie um, because they're worried about what might happen to her if she goes back to the cult with Hannah and they change her name to protect her. Like that's sort of the story that they tell Janie in order to explain what she found in the attic. And I think I believed them. They just seemed so nice and the explanation was so earnest. And I think the way that the author wrote Mm. their sense of relief was really believable. Like it did feel like they just had this huge weight off their shoulders. Um, And at first Janie totally buys it. um, But Mm -hmm. I pulled out the this excerpt from the chapter sort of after the fact and like the morning after the line is it was a nice story they had told last night but what about the springs spring is the last name of this family that that has lost their child what about the milk carton hannah was real the trunk in the attic full of her geography papers proved it but the milk carton was real jenny spring was real and so was that 800 number new jersey was real and that shopping center so it's kind of here where new jersey becomes this like code name for everything bad that's ever happened to Janie. <laughs> yeah throughout the rest of the book she's always like i don't want to talk about new jersey or i want to talk about yeah. new jersey which is kind of how the rest of the book goes like alternating between wanting to engage with, <laughs> with the experience and not but yeah like She just can't quite figure out if she believes them or if she wants to believe them or if she doesn't want to believe them. Like, it's extremely complicated. Yeah. And I feel like ultimately in the end, 
I mean, we can we can talk about this later, but um, when she sends the letter, yeah. it's kind of it, that was such a. How did you feel about that? The fact that she sent off the letter to this family, they think that she sent the letter, right? Yeah, it was, I will say the second half of the book was weird for me, not only because I found Janie a little bit annoying, but because I felt like the plot itself wasn't really that dynamic. Like she wasn't picking up that much more evidence. She and Reeve took this day trip to New Jersey to kind of like spy on the family. She does confirm that these people live in the house who have bright red hair, just like hers. And that's sort of like the last piece of evidence. And then after that, nothing really changes except Janie's mindset about it. And she's just kind of like tormented going back and forth about what to believe and who to protect and what she actually wants. And then all yeah. of a sudden it's like she decides to write a letter. So I think I found that a and little she bit loses frustrating. It. Yeah, she loses, she loses it. it. So somebody mailed it, which I also feel like would not be true. Like if I found a letter, I would not just go mail it. But yeah, I think she I feel was like, like, maybe somebody was a good Samaritan. I'm like, I don't know that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I just don't think so. And Reeve, Reeve's comment to all of that was like, on some level, you clearly wanted to let them know what was going on because she kind of believes that she's put it in her past, even though it's still haunting her. Like she's made her decision. She doesn't want to put her parents in this position of potentially going to jail. And then this letter gets mailed. And his whole thing, Reeve's whole thing was, you wanted this to happen. And I'm thinking, I don't know if that's true, but it is interesting that all of a sudden this decision has been made and she didn't have a quote unquote say in it, but it's happening. And from that point on, like she has to get Reeve's sister, who's a lawyer involved and they have to like discuss it as a family and she has no choice but to tell her parents and they have no choice but to like give this biological family a call. Yeah, it was the second half was kind of I agree the the plot was not not as good. And I felt like when we first met the family or when she was spying on the family and she sees who is definitely her brother. I loved that part. I wanted more of that. Like I wanted her to go back to New Jersey to keep spying on these people, potentially like meet someone and have a discussion with them, but it didn't happen that way, at least not in this book. And I that, w- that was probably my biggest disappointment with this read. I really enjoyed it, but I was hoping that we would actually get to meet the Springs at some point, like that they would come in earlier. But I guess I have to read the next one to get to that. It is one a heck of a cliffhanger. Yeah, I will read it. I'll jump to the end because while we're talking about the fact that the second half of this book sort of falls flat action-wise, it's worth noting that there are other books in the series where we get a lot more information about the Springs. But yeah, the last scene of this book is Janie calling who we believe to be her biological parents. And the last two lines are, hello, said a woman's voice. Janie clung to her mother. She said, hi, it's your daughter, me, Jenny. And that's it. Like, that's the end of the book, which feels so 90s to me because I do yeah. feel like that's kind of how, like, TV in the 90s yeah, was made. So and, like, it's just the cliffhanger was so in. Whereas now, I think it's been, like, a long time since I read a book. Yeah. Even a kid's or YA book that has this kind of a cliffhanger, it's really intense. Yeah, maybe thrillers too, especially like thriller series in the 90s would be like that. That makes sense. Even my husband and I have been binge watching Friends lately. Me too. It's amazing like how many of those episodes have cliffhangers. Like that's what you did in the 90s. Yeah. That's so true. I miss that. I know. Ross and Rachel will they or won't they? I know. (laughs) But that feeling of like, I'm so hooked on knowing what happens to this person and I can't wait for the next one to come out. Yeah. I haven't had that feeling in a really long time. 
in hindsight, I think that's probably one of the things I loved the most about this book. And I think as a whole, the series is pretty good too. Did you read the other books? Do you remember? I don't think that I did. I have no memory of reading the other ones, but I do remember watching the movie or the show or whatever it was. So I... I remember her having, like, I remember the dynamic with her biological family and what that was like, but who knows if that was actually true to the book. Yeah, she ends up meeting the biological family in the other books, and you learn so a you lot more about them. So you remember them. I do. I remember, I remember learning more about her family. I remember reading the last line of this book and being like, I have to get the second book. Like, I yeah. was very hot on this series because of that cliffhanger. <laughs> and I will say that sort of, like, the plot device that the author uses here is interesting. Like, nobody here is really wrong, which is the beauty of it. Like, Janie's parents say that they didn't kidnap her, and technically they yeah. didn't. And the Springs actually were victimized here. Like, it's nice that Janie is not sort of, like, she doesn't lose her positive outlook on any of the people yeah. involved, except for Hannah. And she hasn't even yeah. met Hannah because right. the sort of like the big bomb that's dropped is that Hannah was the one who kidnapped Janie from the shopping center. And that she wasn't well, like she clearly wasn't in her right state of mind when she did that. So yeah, she'd just come out of the time with this cult and who knows what happened to her there. And then um, her parents, Hannah's parents, ultimately Janie's adoptive parents, I guess we could call them, just mm -hmm. sort of assume that this little girl that's with Hannah is mm -hmm. her biological daughter, which they then admit later was like maybe yeah. an unfair assumption to make. Like maybe they were just so desperate right. to have another child around that like they were willing to believe anything so that they yeah. could keep her. And I will say one of my favorite things, I guess the more redeemable things in my mind about Janie's parents, which I don't know, maybe other readers didn't feel like they were that responsible. I was frustrated with them at times, but I really loved seeing in the very last scene, Janie's mom making the decision to call the biological mom and saying like, I know what it's like to have a missing child. I know what it's like to not know where my kid is and to always just be worrying and wondering and I'm not going to put this woman through that. It's kind of like this whole, this whole book, she is struggling to keep her control and then this situation happens and she knows that she really has no control over it and she just kind of surrenders to that. And that to me was like such a powerful, I just don't know if, if I was a mom and that situation happened to me, I don't know if I would feel the same way. Like, I don't know if I would be really empathetic to this biological mom. I would probably just be too afraid of losing my daughter to want to even reach out to her. So I thought that was cool. Yeah, because we're meant to believe that if the Springs want to, they could easily get take the authorities involved and like take Janie away from her parents. So it is extremely selfless what right. her mom does. And in, in an interesting way, she kind of like comes through for Janie in the way that Janie yeah. probably always would have expected her to before Janie started questioning her parents. Like yeah. she ends up being the one who's decisive. And I think when you're a teenager and the world seems so confusing and so complicated, that really is what you want. Like you just want your parents or someone to tell you what you're supposed yeah. to do. Exactly. Do the right thing for you, kind of. Yeah, and her yeah. mom is so all about doing the right thing. Like, she volunteers mm -hmm. for every every last organization in town, and she's always involved in, like, trying to give back. So, yeah, she sort of, like, fulfills that mission of, like, doing the right thing in the end by saying, yeah. you know, we should probably just call the Springs and let them know at least that you're safe. I think, I think that's mm -hmm. sort of, like, the baseline here is that at the very least, this family that's been the victim yeah. of a kidnapping, like, needs to know that their child is safe, and, like, hopefully they won't insist on right. taking her back. 
right? Did you have any feeling throughout the book, or was it just me, that maybe, like, Janie's life with her biological family was not so happy or I had moments where I thought maybe that was also part of why she'd blocked what happened because mm-hmm. maybe it was a little abusive there. We definitely get the sense that like she didn't get a lot of attention because there were a lot of other kids. Some of yeah. her flashbacks are about like two babies crying and right. they're just being a lot of chaos and Reeve is like, you know, no wonder you went with this lady Mm -hmm. who was willing to give you all this attention give you your own ice cream like that would be perfectly natural for a toddler who's used to having to share attention with parents so I think it definitely was chaotic and maybe she didn't get a lot of TLC but I couldn't help but wonder if like maybe it had been a little bit darker than that or maybe that's just an adult reading of the book I don't know yeah that is interesting. I remember having that thought too, um, because one of her flashbacks was like a disciplining moment, I think. And I, I got the impression that she was trying to convince herself that that maybe, maybe this family wasn't so great. And now I have this great family. So, but I think it was like maybe her trying to rationalize because she was feeling so guilty for going with this woman. I don't know. I got the vibe that she was just trying to convince herself to stay where she is and to not rock the boat. And maybe they were terrible people. Maybe it was a good thing that I walked away. But then there's a moment when she's talking to Reeve and she says, I think she says, no, they loved me or something. She kind of just knows that they did love her. I I think that's interesting. I did wonder that at, especially with that one flashback, I wondered if maybe they weren't. But at that point I had been thinking that it was Hannah and this cult Like I even for a little while was like, maybe it was Hannah and this cult. And yeah, who knows who the Springs are. It's so funny how much I like did not remember reading this. There's an article that I found on Bustle while I was researching that's called The Face on the Milk Carton series included some stuff you may have missed as a kid. And it goes through all of sort of these bigger picture kind of like dark elements. Interesting. One of which is the cult because the, the author of this particular article talks about how like cult activities are really scary and yeah. really intense, especially like the Hare Krishnas, there's a lot of scary stuff that went on there. And she talks about how when you're reading it as a teen, you kind of brush past it as this like important part of the story, but you don't think about the fact that like Hannah was quote unquote mated to somebody, you know, that's something that the parents say. And like, she was essentially like told to probably just like have sex with this older guy who was part of the cult. And the implication Mm -hmm. is that Janie may have been a product of that mating, which is really gross when you think about it as an adult. But as a kid, it doesn't feel that way. Um, And there's a lot of other mentions in this article about things that just wouldn't occur to you as a kid that are really scary. Even just the fact that like there was a time in history where kidnapping was such like a part of the conversation that there were pictures of kids on milk cartons. I remember being terrified of being kidnapped as a little kid. And I just, I don't know if now in 2019, our fears are just bigger picture and (laughs) kids are like more afraid of war and and terrorism and school shootings. But I remember as a kid, like kidnapping being such, it felt like it was more part of like the day-to-day fear. I know what you mean. And I feel like the cult, yeah, the cult part of it, I I don't remember being affected by that as a kid. But I did wonder reading as an adult when he said that his company, that her her father, his company actually helped him move and and changed kind of like they were okay with them changing their identities and I was kind of thinking like wouldn't they be in the witness protection program or something? Like if this cult is really dangerous and they knew that they had to get away from them, 
and they had this child now. I don't know. That seemed like kind of unlikely to me. I felt like if they were aware of it, it's not like this big secret that just the mom and dad knew about. It was like his company knew about it. His, I think it was like IBM or something. Yeah, I think it was IBM too. <laughs> yeah. So like IBM knows about this. I was thinking, wouldn't she have a way around? My first thought was, well, she could get her license. Like she would have a way around this. Yeah. If IBM know. knows, maybe IBM can pull some strings. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. I think we should talk about Reeve as we start yes. to close up this conversation because Reeve is a whole other issue. And at the beginning, I really liked Reeve. At the end, I really liked Reeve again. Mm -hmm. He had a lot of redeeming moments, but um, I did want to note that one of the other articles that I found while I was getting ready to talk to you today is from The Toast, and it's called Resentments I Have Formed Against Characters from the Face on the Milk Carton by Caroline B. Cooney. Um, And it's basically like the author is just raving and ranting about all of these characters that she hates in hindsight from the book. And one of them is Reeve. And this is what the author has to say to Reeve. Reeve, guy, I know your face is symmetrical and you're excited about getting to shave, but this is not a book about doing it for the first time. This is a book about how everyone in the world has been lying to your girlfriend and she does not have time for your body right now. Save it for later, Reeve. Your body won't spoil. It's not perishable. At least not in this time frame, it isn't. Oh my gosh, I love it. Yeah, I thought Reeve was lovable in the beginning. I I just loved that he was this like reliable boy next door, not very smart, but lovable kind of guy who's just there. I got super annoyed with him. And and again, thinking like this would never happen in a book published today for like a couple that you're rooting for. But he did seem very pushy about going further. And she, it was funny that she never seemed to really respond to it. Like she did sometimes, but occasionally she would just change the subject. And I thought that was really weird. But yeah, I I definitely had the same thoughts. And, And her friend, Sarah Charlotte, kind of pushing that too. It's like such a big pressure to her, which in some ways, like I love that that was a part of the story because 15 year old girls are getting pressured from their friends and boys and they may not be ready. And like, I love that that was a part of the story, but yeah, she's dealing with so much. Like at one point, doesn't she cry about this horrible traumatic experience and he like is trying to kiss her I'm like come on dude yeah he really pushes her at weird times when they go and cut school to go to New Jersey for the day like after they go to the house and stalk her biological family for a little while he says something to the effect of like there's still time right and she was like for what and he goes to find a motel. I'm like yeah I'm like come on come on you've had quite a day and then they, they go to the motel and she just decides like she can't do it and then he's kind of positioned as like the hero, like, oh, thanks, Reeve, for understanding. I'm like, come on. How good of you, Reeve. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> he was really gross in those moments, but I will say that toward the end of the book, when there was this tension between them about Janie being like so fixated on herself and her very confusing feelings about this potential kidnapping, I was kind of on Reeve's side because yeah. they couldn't do anything, even if you take out the idea of like having sex or hooking up or whatever, like they couldn't do anything without Janie talking about yeah. New Jersey. like, And he was like, you need to make up your mind what you want to do. And it was, it was true. I mean, he was just dropping a truth bomb. Like, this is reality. And you got the sense that he would support her no matter what she needed to do. I think he wanted her to forget about it because that would be the easiest thing. And, you know, they would stay living next to each other. But I think ultimately, like, he, he was the only one for the majority of the book, who was seeing her kind of lose her mind. And I think he was worried about her and wanted her to 
yeah, do something about it either way. And he probably just like snapped one day because it's all she's talking about. She's consumed with this confusing issue and he's the only one who she can talk to about it. So I, yeah, I was empathetic with Reeve at times for sure. He'd done nothing but support her. And I think we've all probably yeah. been in that kind of a situation with a friend or a family member or even with a partner where it's like, I've done everything right. I have listened. Right. I have given you advice. I have driven you where you need to go. Like I have actively tried to help you in the problem that you're having mm-hmm. and you are continuing not to do anything about it. And not only that, but it's really starting to take a toll on our relationship. So I cannot help you anymore. And I think yeah. that maybe as an adult now, I relate to that more. Where as a kid, yes. I probably was totally on Janie's side where I was like, you need to be listening to me. Like, this is a big yeah. deal. You don't get it. But now I'm like, no, Reeve, I get it 100%. Yeah, totally valid. Are there any lessons in this book that you think that young readers could take away? Or do you think it's like pure Mm. fun and thriller, which is fine too. But do you think there's anything sort of like deeper here? Mm. I don't know if I would say lessons. Like, I don't think this is a really didactic book. I think it's mostly entertaining. But I do think there are darker themes than most kids pick up on, which we've already talked about. And I do think there's a lot about shame and guilt and what we do with those feelings and how it really can eat away at you. I mean, we learn that she is starting to physically affect her. Like she isn't eating. She's like losing weight and she's not in a healthy place. And I think, yeah, I mean, there could be a lesson there for kids who are holding on to like darker stuff. I think that people tend to look at middle grade and YA as like, I don't know, teenagers just having like these minor issues and like silly teenage drama. But like the reality is most teens are dealing with really heavy stuff. And, you know, maybe they're not dealing with was I kidnapped by my parents? Hopefully not. But yeah, but but I think the the feelings of being completely isolated not knowing who to talk to, not knowing who's safe to talk to, not knowing who you can trust. And then I think like, I I did ultimately, I liked her um, sense of integrity in her relationship with Reeve. I did think that she was like, tried to be perfect a little bit in the beginning, but she ultimately like, she didn't do anything until she was ready to do something. And I think, yeah, I think kids can learn a lot from Janie. Yeah, and I think even the way she handled that, you mentioned this, but sort of like she just doesn't react. You know, I think a lot of times in books where we're confronted with this kind of situation where there's tension within a relationship about going further physically, there's a lot of speeches about it and it it becomes this like major point of conversation. Whereas Janie just kind of was like, okay, and just moved on. And I think that's, it's nice for kids to read that like it Uh, doesn't need to be this huge speech. Like you can just sort of be like, no. And just not right. be interested. And and I think probably more often than not, like that's what happens where it's just mm-hmm. you don't respond and hopefully your partner allows you to move on. So I think that's a good lesson. I also think there's something to just following your gut, which I think is an important skill yeah. for kids as yeah. they get older. And while I don't necessarily agree with like the way that Janie spoke to her parents all the time, and I don't necessarily yeah. love the way that she was constantly going back and forth for probably like 60, 70 pages about what to do with this information. I think it's great for kids to understand that like there are moments in your life where you just have to follow your instincts and you have to Mm -hmm. stick to what you believe in. And sometimes it means that you have to set out on your own or do things that the people you love might not necessarily be excited about. But if you follow your gut, you hopefully will figure out the truth. So I think that's also important. Yeah. Well said. 
Thank you. So has rereading this book recently made you love and appreciate this book all the more, or do you feel like it's ruined it in some way for you? Oh, I definitely love it. I love it more. I feel like I understand it more. I really think that like a lot of middle grade and YA books are, I know they're intended for younger readers, but books like this, there's so much, there's so much you can tap into as an adult. And they're very, they can be enriching to your reading life, which is why you're doing this podcast. It is why I'm doing this podcast. And this does not read like a YA or a middle grade book at all. And I think yeah, it yeah. just felt like a very short adult right. book, which was kind yeah. of fun. And it's interesting too, and I've talked about this with a few other guests, but like reading some of these books now, you almost relate to like the parents more, which is a weird thing, but yeah. um, you kind of get a more well-rounded view of yes. how all these relationships are working because you, of course, have some more life experience and can relate to people at other ends of the age spectrum. So I think that also like informs the reading experience more. Yeah, totally true. I agree. I kind of want to read the rest of the series now. I do too. We should read it together. That'd be fun. And watch the movie. Yes. Of course. Movie marathon, of course. I can't wait to watch the movie because I looked up, I looked it up on YouTube and it is, it it looks like it's going to be hilarious and wonderful. And yeah, I'm definitely getting on that. I can't wait. So other than the face on the milk carton, what are you reading now? Or what have you read recently that you would recommend to our listeners? And I know you're always reading Molly Reads. (laughs) Well... I am kind of in between books right now. Let's see. I'm, I mean, I'm reading, I'm listening to Becoming by Michelle Obama, which we both talked about. It is so good. Obsessed. I wish I, I can, I just can't decide if I should have listened to it on audio because yeah. everybody's been raving about it. I might have to just go back and sort of like passively oh, listen to so it on audio. Good. Yeah, I would do that because in some ways that's kind of nice. You've already read it. So you can kind of be doing other things and not be like super, I mean, you can listen to it, but it's okay if you kind of zone out. But, um, yeah, it feels like you're getting coffee with Michelle and she's just one of your friends telling you about her life, which is, you know, helps my obsession with her a lot. Yeah, same. <laughs> but in terms of books that I think your listeners would like, have you read Wondersmith yet? I have. Or I guess Nevermore is the first book in the series by Jessica Townsend. It is a middle grade fantasy book that is honestly the only thing that is comparable in my mind it to Harry Potter. And I won't say it is Harry Potter because I know that's a bold claim. Most of the time when people say, oh, it's like Harry Potter, I'm not going to like it because, I mean, how can anything be Harry Potter? But no, Nevermore is the only thing I've read that has Harry Potter vibes. And it's so addictive. You will love this series. Yeah, it's middle grade and there's two books out right now. I think there are going to be nine books total. So... That's exciting. I have not heard of that series, but I'll check it out and I'll include links to it in the show notes for this episode, along with a link to The Face on the Milk Carton. I'm also going to make sure I direct readers to your podcast, No Thanks for Booked, which I love. We'll have to have you on our podcast, too. I would love to. That would be so fun. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on SSR. I'm so glad we actually got to like meet outside of Instagram and I had so much fun talking about this book with you. Yeah, it was really fun. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Molly. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. 
If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.